Good evening. Let's uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now, and we just, as we've been singing, Lord, um, we really want to love you and to know you. Lord, we just recognize that, that you are the fountainhead of love, that you, Lord, are the source of all wisdom, that you're the source of all knowledge, and Lord, you are the source of our life. And we just thank you so much. And Father, we thank you for your book that you've given us, the book, that, Lord, that was breathed out thousands of years ago, where you shared your mind, you shared your story. And Lord, as we sit here today, we can breathe in the story that you left behind through the Holy Spirit. And we just thank you for the privilege. And we ask, Lord, as we, we come before you and we begin to read the scripture, Lord, that it will really take hold on us, that it might be seeds that fall in within us, Lord, and, and that we might leave tonight with a little bit more knowledge of you. So we just ask for your anointing, Lord, as we, as we read your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Um, good evening. Um, it was about... It was a couple of weeks ago when, when John Basson phoned me up and said, would I preach on caring enough to do something? Um, and it was from the book of Nehemiah. And I thought, well, I'm much more comfortable on that side of the computer because that's where I often am. Um, and this evening I'm on the wrong side of the computer. So <laughs> I was a little bit taken aback. And, um, but then he said Nehemiah. And I thought, wow, I just suddenly felt something in my heart. And, and I love Nehemiah. Many, many years ago at university, it was, as a, as a young Christian, it was one book that I really got soaked into because it's so practical in many ways. And I can remember thinking, this should be prescribed reading for anybody in business school or who does project management. It's just an amazingly practical book. And then, and then, but not only that, it's got deep, deep spiritual messages in it. And, and it's, for me, a very important book. So I thought, hey, why not? You know, so here I am feeling very nervous in front of you, but anyway, we'll continue. So um, we're in chapter two, and you would have heard um, Howard last week going through chapter one. And um, so just a quick, quick bit of background and context. We know that it was, uh, this is, uh, takes place in about 516 BC, and we know that the Jews um, were basically taken into exile by the, by the um, Assyrians, and um, they themselves were then defeated by the Persians. And um, the Persians kept them in exile in, in what is modern-day Iran at, at the moment. And they, it was under King Cyrus, I think it was, that actually said to them, you can go back and you can rebuild your temple that's there. And um, he not only told them they could do that, but he gave them food and he, he gave them money to be able to do it. And he also gave them the treasures from the temple that had been looted out. Um, so it was pretty, pretty strange. But anyway, they started to rebuild the temple and um, they built it on exactly the same spot that Solomon's temple had been. It was stopped very briefly in King Darius's time um, but it was rebuilt again shortly. They continued the building afterwards. And it, it was finally built and completed. And 
it had mixed reactions from the people living in Jerusalem because primarily um, it was a very sad remnant of what the original temple was that Solomon had built. Um, so some people wept because of the sadness of that, but others who recognized that God had come back, um, or that, that the temple of God was, was, was back, um, really rejoiced. It was a place where they could actually worship God again. And so they were really quite chuffed about it all. Now, after a while, Artaxerxes basically decreed that Ezra could return together with anyone who wanted to and um, basically really teach the, uh, the Jerusalem's the Torah. And, um, and when he arrived in Jerusalem, he was pretty horrified because he discovered that contrary to the traditions and, the, and God's law, they had intermarried with a lot of the, the tribes that was around. So he was, it was a pretty bad time for Ezra. And I think we, we're not gonna go into the book of Ezra, but you know, that, that played out. But basically, under the, the kingship of Artaxerxes, um, Persia had an empire that was absolutely huge. And it essentially, it extended from the Hindu Kush in India, right the way across to probably Greece um, in the west. It went up as far as Azerbaijan and Georgia, and then as far south as they could go before they plopped into the sea. They couldn't go much further. And probably Saudi Arabia wasn't so attractive in those days because it was just a barren land. They didn't know about oil at that stage. But this, this man, Artaxerxes, was immensely powerful. And to, you know, so powerful. In fact, I look at this huge kingdom and I just I cannot believe that he was able to, to actually control something so big without Google Maps and email and phones and, and that. It's just impossible. And it just gives you a glimpse of his power that he was able to control a kingdom of that size. So this probably was the most powerful uh, person on earth at that particular, you know, particular stage. And he really had the power of life or death over people. And um, I'm only going to focus on a short sliver of time when he was king and that's really the verses 1 to 8 in chapter 2 but um, I think you'll see that there were, God did something quite amazing um, with, with King Artaxerxes and Nehemiah now I think you probably know from last week that Nehemiah was visited by his brother and basically told that the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down that the war, that the um, that the gates had been burnt, and that deeply, deeply troubled Nehemiah. And he was um, really, really upset, and he spent months praying about that. But we know that later on, Nehemiah went on, and he basically was sanctioned to, to, to basically rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 1, the little segue into chapter 2 just simply says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now the cupbearer in, in the court of a king isn't just somebody who drinks wine and if he drops dead, the king knows that he's poisoned and he orders another cupbearer to replace that one. The, the cupbearer had a very, very important position 
Um, it was a servant, but it was a very powerful servant. And it was somebody who basically had to make sure that everything that the king consumed, the food and the wine, was exemplary, that it was perfect. Because anything less than that in the presence of the man that controlled all of this was not good enough. And, um, and if you insulted the king by giving him bad food, uh, by giving him bad wine, you know, you basically lost your life or you were banished. Um, and that meant that Nehemiah really had to be a very, very cultured person. He had to be deeply trusted by the king because the gateway could potentially for him, between life and death, be the cupbearer. Okay? The cupbearer set the standard in the court um, by which everything had to, to, to reach. So it was quite remarkable, in fact, that this person actually was a Jew. And, and you know, clearly that, that was very important. But this sliver of time was very important in the history of, of, of Israel and very important, I think, for us today. So the scene basically opens in chapter 2, after he's told us he was the cupbearer, in the king's winter castle in the Persian city of Susa. This is at the foot of the Zagros Mountains. And it's about, and as I, I, I know it, the exact distance, it's 1,360, I measured it on Google Earth, which, which is about the same distance as Cape Town is from Johannesburg, or maybe Pretoria. So it is quite a long distance that Ezra had to go and um, that we know that Nehemiah is going to travel as well. And this is the same city that, that Esther was forced to, put, to basically participate in what I regard as just a beauty pageant, where she was chosen by King Xerxes to be um, the queen and to be part of his concubine. And we know that she eventually went on to basically save the Jews in Persia with her intervention. So, and Esther, she probably was a contemporary of, of Nehemiah. So let's go and have a look at the, at the beginning of chapter 2 and we'll just read the scripture. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in the presence before. So the king said to me, why does your face look so sad <clears throat> when you're not ill? And this can be nothing else but um, sadness of the heart. And he said, I was very afraid. Well, this was the month of Nisan. It is spring. It's March, around about March, April. It's four months after um, Nehemiah had been visited by his brother, which was in the month of Kislev, which was autumn. So autumn to spring is about four months. And during that time, we know that Nehemiah spent a lot of time praying and fasting and basically waiting on God. Um, <clears throat> Right, so he says, and he gave the wine to the king, and he, the king said, you know, you look sad. Well, nobody was to, supposed to look sad in the presence of the king. I mean, here you were in the presence of the most powerful person on earth. What a privilege. You should be joyful and full of excitement that you had the privilege of serving this wonderful man. Um, being unhappy in his presence, in a sense, was disrespecting him, and that could result in death. So when he said, 
um, I was very afraid. He really was very afraid because this was bad news that the king had noticed this. And it's interesting to note that the king said, you're not ill. I mean, one, we know that um, he wouldn't have um, tasted the food if he was ill. Um, but two, it suggests that there was quite a close relationship between Nehemiah and the king. And I think that's very important. The king intuitively realized that there was something deeply troubling, uh, uh, troubling Nehemiah. And, and what, what Nehemiah did next, whilst he was very afraid, is, was a step of immense courage and, and faith. And quite frankly, he spoke completely out of turn. So not only was he now sad, now he was going to do something that was seriously bad. So he said, um, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Very important point that, I'll come back to it just now. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So, you know, now he's really compounding it. So he's basically saying, you know, may the king live forever. Um, so he's acknowledging, in a sense, that the king is very important and that he's been placed there by God and that he rules, basically, at the behest of God. So he's making that quite clear. But then he says, you know, why shouldn't my face look sad when the city where, where my people are, lie in ruins, is basically buried? Um, so he's saying to him, you're very important. God's put you there, but there's something more important than even you. Now, that's seriously disrespectful to the king. So, you know, I can understand why he was, was basically very afraid and why it took a lot of courage now. And I could imagine that at the time, that room must have gone deadly silent, you know, to the point that you could actually hear a pin drop. Um, they must have thought Nehemiah had completely lost his mind. But surprisingly, what happened next was that the king said, what is it you want? And then I prayed to God of heaven, and I answered the king. So this was quite a fervent prayer. It was like a prayer for help. God, just help me. I've stepped out. You know, this is really serious. And he said, well, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, again, I just think, you know, he was out of his mind in a way because he's not only saying that, he said, I've actually, when he says, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, um, let, let him send me. He's saying, I've really served you well, you know. In a sense, you owe me. Let me, this is what I want to do. Um, quite, quite a step to make. And, uh, you know, where, so that I can go to where my fathers are buried. You know, he must have had faith that he was right in the heart of God and must have had an element of assurance that the timing was right now and that God was right with him. I mean, he stepped out in courage and we do know that when we step out in faith, it is risky and it does take courage. But Nehemiah took the risk in obedience to God. Okay, then... The king said to me, the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. 
and so I set a time. So I really think the timing was perfect and that in a sense, the King Artaxerxes had no choice. Um, he just had to send it because this was God's plan. Um, the timing was perfect and his heart actually was, was clearly in the right spot. And we do know that you know, he gave him a time. We don't know, it's not in the scripture as to what it was, but he must have asked probably for two years, something like that. And we do know that he eventually was sent back as the governor of Trans-Euphrates, um, and he was there for 12 years. But um, what happened next is, is quite important, so quite funny actually in my mind, because now he's taken this risk. The king has said, you know, how long do you want? He then just dives straight in. And he says, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have a letter to the governor of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, the king keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I occupied. So he just dived straight in. He knew exactly what he wanted and precisely what it was that he need, needed. He had a plan. And I believe that was God's plan that basically he had been praying about for those four months. But I mean, you know, just in a sense, the cheek of it, you know, he was asking for building materials and he didn't, he wasn't just asking for builder, building materials from Micah or Builder's Warehouse. He wanted the very best. Okay. This was the king's timber that he wanted. And um, quite amazingly, we know that he was given it. So Nehemiah clearly had a plan. And we see the plan I don't think was his. And so the next sentence is very important because it's clear that God's hand was on Nehemiah. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. And that just reminds me of John 12 verse 49. For I, Jesus, did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me and commanded me to say, and how to say it. And I really believe that that was the essence on the heart of Nehemiah at the time. He basically was, was basically asking for what was in God's heart at the time. Nehemiah deeply, deeply loved God. He deeply, deeply cared um, for the people. And he cared for the land that God had given them. And rather, rather than just sitting morosely around, just in a slough of depression, thinking, oh, this is just so awful, he actually decided to do something about it. Okay. Um, and he didn't just do it. He did it together with God. So just to quickly summarize where we are, Nehemiah loved God, and, clo and clearly so did others, and that's why the temple was built. Nehemiah cared about the city, and a city isn't a city of buildings. A city is a city of people. So he loved and deeply cared for the people. Um, and he loved the people, and he was so worried about them because they were vulnerable. The walls of the city were, were broken down, and, and they were vulnerable to attack from the enemies around them. So that really concerned him. And he prayed, and he listened, and he waited for God's timing. And I think the parallels about what I'm going to say now become quite obvious, I hope. And I'm going to go through four principles that for me are very important. Um, the first principle that I want to talk about is basically to love the Lord your God with all your heart 
with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, loving that first sentence, that is deep, deep, deep passion um, that we've got to love God with. And, you know, it's really deep, deep down in the bottom of us. It's the essence of God is that God is saying, that must love me. Um, and we know that, in, that Jesus said that basically in, in, in Matthew's, he said, Matthew, he says that basically the law and the prophets hang on this command. And really, it's a desire to get close to, to God is very much, you know, I can, I think back, I first met my wife 40 years ago in a charge office in a police station. And, and I kind of knew immediately, well, pretty quick after that, that this was the woman I was going to marry. And I'm not too sure what it was, but it was just something that just said, this is my wife in the future. And I remember phoning my parents and saying, I've just met the person I'm going to get married, and I think they must have thought I was mad <clears throat> when they asked how long I'd known her. But the couple of days, this was in a, a tiny little village of Whitebridge. Um, the next couple of days, I just wanted to spend every waking hour with Jackie. You know, I wanted to know her. I wanted to get in her mind. I wanted to know so much about her, and I questioned her, and we spoke, and we spoke deep into the night, and it was just amazing just getting to know Jackie and I was also quite anxious to know because it became obvious that there was a mutual attraction what it was about me that she loved because I wanted to make sure that I continued those traits so <laughs> and and so that was quite important to know and I think it's the same with God I think we should love God so passionately that we actually want to spend every waking moment focusing on him getting to know him and that means reading his word that means praying, praying with him and really understanding the essence of God and trying to understand what it is about us that God loves. Because my word, he really does. He's so patient with us. I mean, if you just look at the history of Israel and you think of your own history as, as how God is so passionate about us and he sent his son to die for us. So, I mean, that love is awesome but so sadly so many people don't seem to know that they don't seem to understand why it is that God would love them so deeply you know they kind of think well I'm a, I am a sinner I'm not good enough you know um, I can't understand how God could actually love me or I'm a failure or you know I've caused so much trouble but the reality is deep down the essence of you he loves and the sequence of this command is very important to me because first of all it's to love the Lord your God secondly it's to love your neighbor as yourself now loving my neighbor sometimes can be quite a trial okay and once you know what it is that God loves in you it's very easy to slip into the next bit and love your neighbor because then you begin to realize that God beautifully and wonderfully and miraculously created them and loves them just as much as he loves you and in the same way as I began to really love the things that Jackie did um, so I as as I love God I begin to love the things that God loves and he loves every single one of us
basically the two elements of this command and remember that it is a command that Jesus has given us. It's not just a suggestion. So it is something that we should be focused on all the time. But it should be the source and motivation from which all our activities should be based on. So when you truly love the, God, the Lord your God, you automatically slide into what he loves, and that's the people. Um, and we're very similar to what Nehemiah, in the position that Nehemiah was. He, was. he was concerned about the people because they were vulnerable to attack. And in the same way, the people that we should be loving, our neighbor, are vulnerable to attack as well. And we should be deeply concerned about that. So I'm going to move on to now the second um, principle that's important to me. And that is to talk about the gospel. Now, the question I'm going to ask is a question that's not originally mine. It's, uh, I think it's Bruce Collins who wrote a book. And he said that he often asks people, what is the gospel? And he is intrigued by the answer. And I've been doing that a lot as well. And inevitably, when I ask people, what is the gospel, the good news, in other words, um, it's, it's quite interesting because so often they basically say, well, it's because Jesus died for me and that I'm a sinner and I now have eternal life. But I'd suggest that the gospel is that Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth. And that's the good news. So you enter into the kingdom of God through Jesus. That's important. Um, and that is the good news. So many of us just stop at the cross. Don't actually go any further into, into the kingdom. And as, as Christians, we should be entering the kingdom with joy and, and just, just the glory of being in the kingdom of God is awesome. And that's going to bring me on to the, next, the third principle that I want to talk about. And that is that Jesus basically told us to continue the work of Jesus here on earth. Um, and that was to extend the kingdom of God. So we don't just enter it and enter the kingdom and just have a good time. We actually enter the kingdom with a mission. And that, that mission I want to talk about now. If we go into the next slide and just take a look at the, some of the scriptures, and I've got many, many more. Um, but whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. That is awesome. Jesus is saying, you've got to continue doing the works that I did, but I... But when you do it, you're going to achieve so much more. Because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I, that, that is just a verse that I always feel really excited about. And again, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed in them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So what we're doing... We go into the kingdom and we are building the walls of the kingdom and continually extending it outwards all the time. And a lot of this just flows automatically from the command that comes from Jesus. So I've got a couple of key principles, which I kind of regard as kingdom principles. And that is that Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth. He, he were mandated and we're empowered to continue his ministry. And through our caring and our love for, for those around us who are at risk of ending up in hell, 
we are to act and do something and extend the kingdom of earth. And we're building the walls of the kingdom ever outward, always going out and restoring the king, God's kingdom here on earth. So I hope you can see a lot of the comparisons between Nehemiah and, and really what I've been talking about now. So Nehemiah loved God deeply. He loved his people and he cared deeply because they were at risk. And he prayed to God and in so doing listened to God and he did something. Okay. So often when we see needs around us, um, we can react in so many different ways. And basically, how can we react to a need? Well, the first thing, you can say, oh, this is just too much. You just get overwhelmed and you just do nothing. Or we just feel it's so sad and we do nothing. Um, or we say, this isn't my, this isn't my ministry or my gifting. Um, I think somebody else should be doing it. It's their ministry. It's their gifting. Or it's basically beneath me. Um, you know, I've, I'm, I feel I'm on earth to, to achieve greater results than just dealing with the homeless person that's on the street outside me. Or we just outsource the problem. You know, we pay money to missionaries or we, you know, we just basically pay somebody else to do the stuff. Um, or we do nothing because we're waiting for a sign. Some, some big sign that says, right now, Tom, off you go. This is it. You're going to um, solve world poverty. But really and truly, we should be doing what Nehemiah did. We just basically said, here I am, God. What can I do? And really to do something and to care enough to be able to do something moves us into the fourth and final principle that I want to talk about. And, and that is having a servant's heart. You can love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, and you can love your neighbor. But if you don't have a servant heart, you basically fall into the meaning of things that I went through just now. And that servant heart, I think, is very important for us. And um, here, out of Mark, Jesus said, he called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that servant heart is critical, I think. Nehemiah was principally a servant, an important servant for that. That was his profession. But he served the king faithfully, and I think he went on to serve God faithfully as well. And I think that's what we've been called to do. Um, and we've been called to have a servant heart. And again, you need that same sequence. You know, you've got to love the Lord your God, and then you serve his people if you love them sufficiently. And servanthood needs to be based on genuine love. It shouldn't be a false love. It shouldn't be done out of pressure. It shouldn't be set, done out of a sense of duty or, or guilt. It should be done simply because you love God. God, you might be able to fool a lot of the people a lot of the time, but you'll never fool God. He knows what the true essence of your heart is. Um, 
that servant heart needs to be needs to be quite genuine. And I think that the important part of that is that you can't serve properly unless you really know what God created you to be. You need to understand the identity that God has for you, your identity in Christ. And as you get to know God, so that becomes apparent because that's what God is loving in you. It's your identity that he has created in you. And that's why it's important, basically, to spend time with God to be able to know that. That servant heart is important because actually when it's genuine, people feel it. Um, there was, there's a saying that's attributed to Mayor Angela, um, but actually isn't. It's by a rather, rather dodgy theologian called Karl Buchner. But, you know, I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think it's very true. Um, he said, they may forget what you say, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. I just think that is so true. I, I when I look back when Form 2 in maths class, I don't remember a word of what my maths teacher taught me at all. But I know he terrified me. So it's the same thing, you know, really and truly, it's, it's having that servant heart and actually demonstrating Jesus' love that people will feel and touch and know. And I think that's very important. But I don't think you really need to overwork it, okay, and try and do it in your own time. Um, I think God brings opportunities to you, and with a servant heart, you respond to them. You know, we just think of the the story of the Good Samaritan and the way the other people kind of treated the person who was robbed and beaten up. Um, it's just simply he almost stumbled over a person who had been beaten up and robbed. And, and so often that's what happens to us. And one of the reasons we don't do anything is because often we don't recognize the need. We're actually not aware of it. And, and we don't respond to the things that God has brought right before us. And I think it's, I just want to give a couple of stories from my own life. And I'm, I'm not trying to tell lots of my war stories, but I know my testimonies better than I know yours, so I can draw on mine. But the, the one that I, that I want to, to talk about was I remember going to the Biltong kiosk in um, Constantia Village. And the lady that's there can be pretty brusque. You know, she's not the friendliest person around. Um, and I remember going in and saying to her, um, good, uh, good, good, good day, how are you? How are you feeling? And she, she sort of said, oh, good and you. And I was about to place my, my order for Bultong. And just something in my heart just said, actually, you're not okay. So I thought, I said to her, actually, I don't think you're okay. You know, something's really troubling you. And at that point, she just burst into tears, you know, and I had I'd obviously pushed the button somehow, but she had just had a most awful racial incident just shortly before I got there, which had really hurt her badly. And here was a time where I think God had just brought somebody there, and it was important that I just spent some time with her, just saying how awful she must have felt, you know, and then we, then we eventually went on to speak about the person who had a heart that could actually say those things. And, and whilst I don't think I, there was a conversion there immediately, I genuinely believe that God prompted me to say something. 
And because I did that, I had the faith to the know that that will be built on. So, so often we don't know what our role is and what the end result is of actually responding to a need that's before us. That's not really the point. The fact is we're foot soldiers in God's army. We do what we're told and then it's built on afterwards. Um, I, I can remember going to, I was doing some work in Botswana and it was a very large company there. Um, that I needed to get some information from. And I asked the people in the office in Botswana to set up a meeting with this, and it's a very large, well-known company. Um, I wanted to see somebody in operations and get some information from them. And I arrived in Botswana to be told that they had actually arranged for me to meet the entire board of this company, which was a little worrying because I didn't really know what I was gonna say to the board. But anyway, it was, it, it was what it is, you know. I had to meet them at half past eight the following morning and I remember getting there early because I wasn't sure where the office was. And sitting downstairs in a, there was a wimpy bar there, and just praying to God, saying, God, I don't know why this is like it is, but please just help me in this meeting. And I walked into the meeting and eventually I met all the board members and I'm thinking, what am I gonna say to these people? And then the chairman walked in and he sat down and he looked around and he said, I'm really not sure why I'm about to say this, but I think we need to open this meeting and pray. Um, and he kind of looked around the room and you could see everybody ducking behind the desk. You know, they really didn't want to have to open and pray. And he, he picked on the operations manager, which actually was the person I really should have been seeing. Um, and he said, you pray. And he started off quite nervously, and then just suddenly it just flooded out. You know, it was the prayer must have gone on for about 10, 15 minutes. And it was awesome. And I kind of, you know, and then I had a really good meeting. <laughs> I, we agreed on how I was gonna get the information and everybody was so friendly. And as I walked out, the off, out of the offices, I kind of thought, what, what's that all about? And it was like he said, don't worry, it's not your problem, it's now my problem. I just needed you to pray beforehand and do that. And I think that's what happens. You know, d don't expect earth mountains to move. Um, just do what God has put in front of you and do it with God. And I think that's very, very important. Right, I've basically come to the end of what I'm going to say. Um, I hope I've made sense. Okay. And I just want to end with uh, a song. And each time I've said this, I've seen people look a little no nervous <laughs> when I've said that. I promise you I'm not going to sing. Um, I'd clear the room. But basically, it's a, it's a song, it's the lyrics from um, Matthew West's song, Do Something. And he said, I woke up this morning and I saw a world full of trouble now and thought, how do we ever get so far down? And how is it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven and I thought, God, why didn't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. I mean, the thought disgusted me. So I shook my fist at heaven and I said, God, why don't you do something? And God said, he said, I did. I created you. I think that's so important. He's created each one of us to do things. Let's just close and pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We, we, we just thank you so much for the story of Nehemiah. Lord, I just pray that 
as we go out, we just come to know you more and more. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the resources to get to know you, your word, your Holy Spirit. And the things that come before us, Lord, we thank you for that. Just help us to be aware of the needs that are around us. Help us, Lord, to tie in with your plans and to do something. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tom.